Lord, you are the one who made both the sky and the soil, the sea and all of the things that live in the sea. You are the one who does what you say. You are the one who defends those who have been wronged. You are a God who feeds the hungry, who sees us when we are in desperate days of our lives. You are the God of Abraham, of Hagar, of Jacob. And you are not set off course by our failures. You are not surprised when we forget who we are as your people. You are not surprised when we forget who you are. Lord, could you remind us of who you are? Remind us of the ways that you've shown us your goodness, your mercy, your forgiveness in our lives and in the stories of our lives. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. God, we name the places in our world where we are waiting to see evidence of your presence and your character in our own hearts and in our families, in our neighborhood, in our city and in our province and in our country and in our world. We hold these out before you. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. We pray for rain in a dry world. We pray for the farmers who are watching fields turning yellow with a second crop of canola after the first one was so thin. We pray for transport systems trying to get food to those who need it. We pray for insight to those who are creating the policies that shape all of this. Lord, you are present in these details, and you are present in the large picture. You are a God who feeds the hungry, and we need you. So we name the places where people are hungry. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. God, this week many of us spent time thinking about reconciliation, speaking, thinking about truth. And sometimes we are so very aware of how impossible this task, this invitation to reconciliation seems. Sometimes it's because we are so very aware of our own shortcomings, of the ways that we get things wrong of our own sins, of the truth of our own hearts and actions. But you are a God who forgives us, who invites us to be reconciled to you. So Lord Jesus, forgive us for our sins. 
and together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. Sometimes reconciliation seems impossible because of the ways that we have been wronged, the ways that our lives have been affected and messed up and destroyed by the actions of others. Lord, we hold these things up before you and ask that you show us how to forgive the way you forgive. We know that you are a redeeming God, a reconciling God. So please show us how to be like you in this. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, we bring before you the decisions and the realities that continue to be part of our lives in this pandemic. Things we hardly name in prayer because we feel there might not be an easy answer or solution. We pray for our teachers and our educators, for parents and grandparents and guardians, for nurses and doctors and cleaning staff and clinic administrators, for those in places where decisions are made, for those who had to implement decisions, for those places where people who disagree meet and live. And we pray for your people who call Lakeview home here. We pray for our pastoral search team. We pray for those who are gathered here today. We pray for those who are a part of us but are connecting from home. And we pray for our ministries as we draw smaller groups of children and youth and families and home churches together to seek you and to find you and to encourage each other to live for you. We pray for Allison as she teaches us this morning. Thank you for her. Would you shape us by your spirit? Shape us to live for you in these complex days. And together we say, Lord, hear our prayers. Amen. Before we begin, I'm just going to share a few announcements. Um, first off, if you're new here, We'd love to connect with you. And so if you'd like to sort of let us know that you're here, you can visit lakeviewchurch.com slash connect and just let us know that you're here um, and let us know if uh, we can help you out with anything. Uh, and while you're doing that, if you're interested in joining a home church, this October is when we're launching home churches. And so if you're interested in that, uh, go and fill out the connect card and let us know. And also, uh, we just invite any of you who call Lakeview Church home to consider giving financially. And if you'd like to do that, you can do it in person by using the give box at the back or visiting the info booth, or you can give online at lakeviewchurch.com or by texting 84321, okay? Oh, and this is your final reminder to go get a pod for communion if you haven't gotten one, so we can take communion together. So back into our series on restarting, where we're exploring the sacred stories of those who, like us, had to begin again. But before we jump into the passage that we're exploring today, I'm going to give you a little context so that you know sort of where it fits in the overall story that we're talking about, but also so that you get some background for the passage that we're in today. So our first character in this series was Abraham. And then last week, Carissa taught us about Hagar, the servant girl of Abraham, who gave birth to Ishmael, who was the brother of Isaac. You got that? 
Now, Abraham's story is actually the origin story of the people of God. His family is chosen by God to be a blessing to all of the nations. But if you didn't clue into this last week, here's the open secret about this family. They are super dysfunctional. And today, our sacred story reveals that dysfunction even further. We're going to explore the story of Jacob. He is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. And he and his twin brother Esau are trouble from day one. Listen to this. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. And the Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. She probably didn't even know she had twins in her belly, right? And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. And the first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. And then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. And so they named him Jacob, which means heel grabber. So from the very beginning, Jacob wants what Esau has. It's like he wants to be the first one out of that womb, right? He's grabbing onto his brother's heel. And their relationship is fraught with competition, conflict, and difference. Esau is a man's man. He's hairy and muscular. He likes to hunt and fish. He likes to be outdoors. And he is beloved by his father. But Jacob stays at home. He cooks. He likes ideas. Maybe he listened to Bach. Probably not. And his mom loves him. And Jacob is the one that God has said will rule over his brother. The older will serve the younger. But this is a problem because Esau is the oldest, which in the ancient Near East meant that he was the one who should get the birthright. Um, and the birthright was like a package of blessings that went to the oldest son. It was like double the inheritance of the other kids, um, and it benefited that older child and then subsequent generations. It meant wealth and power. It meant a leg up. So right from the start, we can see that these boys are set up for conflict. And while the birthright rightfully belongs to Esau, Jacob, with the help of his mother, grasps for it and tricks Isaac into giving the birthright to Jacob instead. And this understandably creates a huge rift in the family, and Jacob ends up fleeing for his life. So Jacob heads back to Haran, the land of his grandfather. Uh, he settles down for a time, finds a couple of wives. That is also a very interesting story, if you would like to read it. But it's not long before his wily ways catch up to him again, and he has to flee for his life again, this time from his father-in-law. And now we're kind of in the backdrop of our story today. Jacob has left Haran, where his father-in-law has threatened to kill him, and he is on his way back to see Esau, the brother that threatened to kill him 20 years ago. And in chapter 2, 
Jacob finds himself on the shores of the river Jabbok, which commentators told me means trouble. Jacob is on the shores of trouble, and he also is in big trouble. He can't go back to where he's come from, to his father-in-law's land, and ahead of him is Esau. His past is colliding with his future, and it does not look good. So Jacob sets up camp on the side of the river farthest from Esau, and he starts to hatch a plan. He sends some of his servants ahead of him to meet Esau and maybe just like test the water, see what he's walking into, and maybe just like massage the situation a little bit, make it a little bit easier for him. And the servants come back to report back to Jacob that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, which, by the way, is a standard-sized militia. And Jacob is scared. He thinks his brother is coming to kill him. And so in, in an effort to save his skin, he sends the servants back uh, with goats and sheep and rams and camels and cows and bulls and donkeys, hoping that his gifts will thaw his brother's heart. And then he waits on the side of the river trouble. That night, though, he wakes up. He can't sleep. And he ends up collecting his family and all of his possessions, and he moves them to the other side of the river and heads back to the far side all by himself. And this is where our story begins. This left Jacob alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob comes back across the river by himself, and like a scene from the Pink Panther, this mysterious figure appears out of nowhere and starts to wrestle him. At this point in the passage, we don't really know who this figure is. Is it an enemy? Is it Esau? Is it an angel? Jacob has had a lot of conversations with angels over his life. Whoever it is, when they realize that Jacob will not give up, they reach out and touch the socket of his hip and wrench it out of place, putting him out of commission. So, I have a brother who's 10 years younger than I am. And when we were growing up, I hate to admit this, but I used to pin him on the ground and play 10 chocolate bars. Does anybody know the game 10 chocolate bars? No. This is not, like, this isn't a pro tip for older siblings, by the way. Don't do this at home. So what I would do was I would pin him on the ground, and then I would tap his forehead, and he had to name 10 chocolate bars before I would stop tapping. And sometimes I would lose count. I was, it was, I'm not proud of it, but the point of this story is that I've gotten my comeuppance, so listen to this. Um, it didn't take very long for me to get older and less agile, while he, 10 years younger, was getting bigger and stronger and also learning some WWE moves on television. And one of those WWE moves was the small package. Does anybody know what a small package is? 
this is what he would do. He would wrap his arms around my head and my neck and pull it, me in for a hug. And then he would wrap his arms and, or his arm around my legs and knees, and then he would just like pull me in for a bear hugs. Thus, small package. Couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. My brother, almost 25 years later, is still putting me in a small package, although much less frequently. And when he decides he's going to put me in a small package, there's nothing I can do about it except for yell for help. I used to yell for help to my dad, but he's out of commission now. So do you now know who saves me now? His wife, my sister-in-law. She's my savior. She makes him let me go. Now, while these verses remain ambiguous about the identity of Jacob's wrestling partner, later in the passage, passage, Jacob identifies this man as God. He is wrestling God on the shore of the river trouble. And God puts Jacob in the equivalent of a small package. The passage says that when the man saw he could not prevail against Jacob, he just pulled out his best move. He dislocated Jacob's hip with just the touch of his hand. And like the older sister, who suddenly realizes she is no longer stronger, can no longer manipulate the situation, and can no longer take advantage, Jacob finds himself vulnerable. All of his protections are gone. You see, he sent all of his resources back across the river. The servants, the possessions, his family, and now he has no capacity to run away. He has no capacity to fight back. He is pinned. Jacob has spent his whole life clinging and grasping for this blessing while all the way all the time, running away from the one who promised it to him in the first place, God. At every opportunity, he has turned the blessing into a bargain. He has sweet-talked his way through conflict. He has found the loophole. He has managed to bend the rules. But here, when all of his assets and protections, when all that he has earned and grabbed and planned for and lied for, is across the river, separated by trouble, he meets God. There is nowhere else for him to go. Sometimes a new start comes when it feels like everything is completely lost. When you are separated from everything and everyone that's familiar and secure. And almost always, a new start comes on the edge of trouble, and it can be terrifying. Where does it feel like trouble is separating you from the things that you usually find security and comfort in? Where is trouble making you vulnerable, severing you from old ways of managing, of controlling, of thinking, maybe even of believing. Perhaps the events of the last year and a half have challenged your view of God. You had a clear view of God's goodness. You knew how God dealt with his people, but trouble has opened up distance between experience and belief, and you're left wondering if you had it right, 
and if your beliefs will hold. The story of Jacob teaches us that there is potential to meet God in the midst of our trouble. There is potential to meet God when we are bereft of our strategies for control, when we are separated from old securities and protections of past comforts. But it is not an easy meeting. It is a struggle. It is wrestling. But this wrestling also means that God is close. So one of the things that I hate most about the, fat, about the small package my brother puts me in is that our faces are almost touching. I have a lot of like, I like my personal space and we're just so close. We are literally face to face. I can smell his breath. And in verse 30 of this chapter, Jacob names this place where he wrestles God, Peniel, which means I have seen God face to face. The wrestling brought him face to face with God. And Jacob was tenacious. It says he wouldn't let go, and nor should we. So are you in a wrestling match with God? Engage it. Get in close. Grapple. Ask questions. Maybe make demands. Don't give up. Hold on. Smell God's breath. Don't be afraid of the separation that trouble brings between you and whatever made your life feel controlled in the past. This is a chance to wrestle things to the ground or maybe even to get wrestled to the ground. Don't give up because God honors this relentlessness in Jacob he honors this tenacity. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Some versions of this verse say, you have wrestled with God. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. So um, naming our children was not an easy exercise for my children's dad and I. Um, and especially with our first son, we could not agree on a name. If I remember correctly, he liked traditional names like, you know, Matthew and Thomas and Lucas, and I liked edgy, trendy names, and I wanted to name him Jed, which got vetoed immediately because if you're a Gen Xer, you grew up on the Beverly Hillbillies, and nobody wants their baby to remind people of Uncle Jed Clampett. So, all right, he was right about that. So we compromised, and we named our son Brennan. It wasn't either of our favorite names, but we really loved the author Brennan Manning in those days, and that name spoke of grace to us. But later on, I remember looking at the meaning of the name Brennan, and I want you not to judge me for that because there was no interweb when we had Brennan. We just had one little book of baby names, and Brennan wasn't in it. So I looked it up after he was born, and I found out that his name means brave. And it's interesting because Brennan is brave. In fact, he's a little too brave 
for my liking. He's that kid who will run full speed ahead into trouble just to prove he can do it. But even though it was unintended, Brennan's name reveals something about his character. And this is also true of Old Testament names. In the, word of, in the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, names are not mere labels, but they are signals of character and calling. Over and over in the passages that we're going to explore in these months, we see the way that names are used to reveal the characters of individuals. The name of a person tells a story. So Jacob means heel grabber because he came out of the womb, grasping his brother's heel. But that isn't all that Jacob means. Jacob also means overreacher. It means supplanter. It means cheater. And so when God asks Jacob his name, it's not because God doesn't know who God's wrestling. God is asking Jacob to reveal who he really is, to admit his true character. And this is the truth. Jacob received two blessings. He received the birthright from his father, and he received a blessing from God. And the birthright he stole promised the dew of heavens and the fatness of the earth. It promised power and prestige and possession. God promised him that he would be included in the promise of Abraham, that he would increase in number, and that God would be with Jacob his whole life. And while Jacob wanted these blessings, he didn't trust them. He strategized instead. He cheated, he grasped, and he clung and in anticipation with this face-to-face -face with Esau, he also came face-to-face -face with God, but God also asks him to come face-to-face -face with himself. He has cheated. He has lied. He has stolen. But then this amazing thing happens when Jacob admits who he is. God renames him. God calls him Israel, which means the one who wrestles with God. And from this time forward, this becomes the defining characteristic of the people of God. They are the ones who don't let go, who hang on for dear life, even when doubt and trouble come. And they are the ones whom God will put in a small package over and over and over again, just to make sure that they remember who they are. So does God have you pinned right now? What is God forcing you to deal with? What part of yourself or your life or your past needs to be named? What things in your life do you avoid coming face to face with because they reveal parts of your character that you might not be proud of? In Jacob's story, his name, his character, his need to face his past, and his meeting with God, they're all kind of wrapped up together. And they are with us as well. When we tell the truth about what we've done, an amazing thing happens. God gives us a new name. God tells us a deeper truth about who we are. We are not the sum of our mistakes, 
we are the ones who wrestle. We wrestle with ourselves and with our past, but ultimately, we wrestle with God. And I want to take a little excursus here and talk a little bit more about this renaming. Um, so I have two children who are biological, so I named those kids. But I also have two children that I adopted. And so um, they were named by their birth mom. So one philosophy in adoptive parenting is that we rename our adopted children in order to claim them. And sometimes that's a good idea. But we decided not to do that because we uh, believed that their birth mom had a prior claim on them. And so in order to honor her, but also to claim these kids as our own, we ended up changing the pronunciation of one of our son's name and then the other son, we use his middle name. And the New Testament also uses the metaphor of adoption and of renaming to talk about what happens when we open ourselves up to God. God claims us. He calls us his children. And God also renames us, revealing a deeper identity, a deeper truth about who we are. And this is shown beautifully in the passage about Jesus' baptism. Listen to this. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. God makes this claim about Jesus, but God also makes that claim about us. We are beloved. And so here's just quick advertisement for baptism, which is happening November 21st. Baptism is deep and meaningful. It, it just, you can't get to the end of the meaning of baptism. But one thing that baptism proclaims is that we are claiming our true identity as the children of God. We are no longer finding our primary identity through the names that the world gives us, we are no longer defined by our mistakes or inadequacies or our sins. In baptism, like Jesus, we receive our true identity as God's children, the ones who bring God great joy. It's really beautiful. But claiming this identity is often not an easy task. It comes through struggle, through loss, through wounding, and often through vulnerability. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. And then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means the face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. So years ago, I went to stay with my aunt and uncle in California, and it was a time where I was really struggling. I was trying to level out, find some equilibrium. I was wrestling hard with God. And one day we were walking along the beach, my aunt and uncle were walking in front of me, and as I watched them walk, I noticed that my uncle walked with a limp. 
Now, my uncle broke his femur when he was 14. He was playing hockey on an outdoor rink after school, and he fell and hit his leg on the bar that goes along the ice and broke his femur. And because he was still growing, his broken leg didn't grow like his healthy leg, and he has one leg that's three quarters of an inch shorter than the other. But then, in addition, as time went on, uh, the hip socket continued to deteriorate, and his limp became more uh, noticeable, more developed. Now, I had known that my uncle had a significant um, injury when he was a kid, but, and that he kind of swung his leg around in order to compensate, but in my mind, that was just his gait. It wasn't a limp. Until that day, I noticed the limp. And as I watched him, I realized that he was a living metaphor for the time that I was going through in my own life. I, too, was going to come out of that time, a time of wounding, with a limp. But in the meantime, I had to hang on. I had to continue to wrestle. Jacob fought for this blessing his entire life. But the truth was he didn't have to fight for it. He didn't have to grasp it. He didn't have to lie or try to lay claim on it himself. It was his all along. He simply had to trust God. But it wasn't until he was pinned to the ground that he stayed still long enough to be reminded that the blessing was given, not earned. Jacob came out of that encounter with God with the blessing that he so wanted, but he limped away. And every step that he took from that day forward was a reminder that the blessing came with a wound. And this is true for all of us. Blessings come with wounds. But the wound is the very means by which God pins us down and through which we experience the truth that whatever it is that we have been fighting for our whole lives has been ours all along. The wound becomes the means of blessing. The blessing and the wound go hand in hand. My uncle is an amazing person. He is kind and thoughtful and wise. He is one of the most generous and gracious men that I know. He is blessed. But he has had more than his fair share of broken bones. I, through my wrestling, had a wound but I also got a blessing. Through it, I learned my own identity as God's beloved child, as the one who brings God joy. The blessing and the wound go hand in hand. So today we're going to take communion together. And communion is a way in which we take these sacred stories of restart and we ingest them. We make them a part of our lives. It is a way that we participate in the truth to which these stories point. And this morning, I just want to invite you to name the truth from this passage that you feel is playing out in your story. Are you wrestling? God is face to face with you in your wrestling. You can come and eat 
and receive the energy that you need to keep wrestling, to hang on in the midst of trouble, to wait for the blessing. Are you avoiding coming face to face with God or with yourself or with your past? This is your liquid courage to help you face the truth of yourself and discover the truth that you are named beloved. You bring God great joy. Do you feel like you have been fighting for love, for belonging, for blessing your whole life? This meal reminds us that we don't have to fight any longer. Through Jesus, it is already ours. I so wish I could invite you to limp your way forward and receive this blessing like we did pre-COVID. But instead, before we eat together in our seats, I'm just going to give you a few simple instructions if you haven't used these pods before. So if you pull off the first layer of plastic, you're going to find the wafer. You don't have to do it yet. And then after that, you pull out the, over, off the second layer and you'll find the juice. I'm going to read the words of Jesus inviting us to eat, and then we'll eat the wafer together. And then I'm going to read the words of Jesus inviting us to drink, and we'll drink together. Okay? On the night of his betrayal, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can take the wafer now and eat with these words, his body broken for you. In like manner, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Go ahead and drink the juice with these words. His blood shed for you. Let's respond together as the band leads us in worship. Mm -hmm. 